Well, good morning, guys. It's good to see you again. I don't get to see you guys too much, so it's good seeing the faces again. It stinks not being able to hug you because obviously you're going to have to listen to this all day. Uh, but I am, I am sick. We went to Vegas last week and came back with cooties, like on many levels. Uh, and, uh, and one of them is, I was just bragging to like the boys last week. I was like, I haven't been sick in over a year. Like, I don't even remember what it's like to feel sick. And now I'm just like dying. I'm on my deathbed right now, I want you to know. So, but we're going to get through this. So, um, it's good to see you guys. So many of you were praying for that trip last week to Vegas. We didn't go because we like gambling. Uh, we went because we have a boy that lives there that's 24 years old and, uh, he's in a punk band and, uh, I'm good with punk. That's not the problem. (laughs) That's not the problem yet. Uh, and, and, um, and he lives in a house with the rest of his band. So there's like five of these dudes that share this home in Vegas right off Fremont. And he's the only believer. And so you can imagine like what this home is like uh, and so me and Carrie went and visited this house and, and, um, and got the tour and, uh, and then took his band out for dinner because we wanted to get to know them and, and let them know that Christians aren't just a bunch of Martians, aliens from outer space, like we're normal people. We like punk too, some of us. And uh, so um, we, we, uh, we had, bottom line, some really significant conversations with our son. And uh, I had multiple times of, of, of really, let me just say it this way. Your guys' prayers were evident because me and my wife were dreading this trip. Like we were, um, we know how our interactions with him have been over the last year. And uh, we were just dreading this trip, but we're trying to stay in this kid's life at least and say, we love you and God loves you. We're not going down to like hound him, but to, but to like say, you know what, you're, you're ours. And we would do anything for you, and God, and God even more so. And so that's what this was about. Um, his attitude was so different than what we expected. Um, it's been so cold and so hard and so angry towards us. And um, he actually he actually acted without acting like he enjoyed us, uh, like he was happy to see us. He cut out a, a huge amount of time every single day. We thought maybe we were going to get a couple hours one night, and then that was it because these guys these guys play in bars and clubs all the time. And uh, we ended up getting all this time with him and even got to share the gospel with a couple of his buddies, um, and, and that was cool too. So what I want to say is that I don't know how prayer works. I never have. Prayer is one of the weirdest theological things to me um, that I have never been able to figure out but somehow it does. Somehow God uses it to do um, what it is he determines to do. And, and, and somehow we get to be a part of that. And so you guys praying the way you did for my family makes me feel so loved and so blessed. And it made a huge difference on this trip. So thank you. And I would ask you now to double your efforts. Because I, like, I feel like God's doing, maybe, maybe, maybe this dude's at a crossroads right now. He's reading his Bible every single day, and that didn't come from him. That came from his roommate that was annoyed that he reads his Bible every day. And, and he's actually talking about what he's reading with his buddies. Uh, he says lately he's been having weird dreams. And he's like, Dad, you know I'm not some kooky, kooky Christian. But he's like, I'm having dreams, and when I wake up, I don't know their dreams. Like, I think they're real. And, and he told me about some of these things. And, and, and it was, it's God that's like working on this kid right now and like overloading his brain. So keep praying, not just for my kid. There are so many of us in this room that have kids that are estranged from us or, or just simply aren't walking 
in the way that we want to see them. What we want to see our kids love Jesus. That's it. We're not asking for much. We want our kids to know the Lord. And I know that there's so many of us right now that are, that are, that are so worried that lose sleep over where our children are at. So let's all keep praying for the kids in this congregation, all right? Thank you guys so much for that. All right, now that I've added too much time onto the sermon, open your Bibles to Galatians. I think this was mentioned to you, but I'm going to mention it again. You're going to start seeing something a little bit weird going forward. Uh, we're kind of in a new, a new season of the door uh, where some of our expansion that's going on uh, with the Lapine uh, is, is creating some new challenges and ways of doing things. And so we're going to be a little bit experimental with some of it. Um, one of the things that, that, um, that a lot of churches aren't doing, and I don't at all mean this arrogantly, or I should say this, a lot of churches, that, uh, a lot of things that churches are doing is building their congregation on a personality. And um, we've always kind of kicked against that idea. It's so easy to do. It's so natural for us to gather around a person and a personality rather than the gospel. And one of the reasons why you come to the door and you see a plurality of teachers is because we believe that that's a biblical model. We believe that Paul uh, uh, had people appoint elders, plural, everywhere that they went. And an elder is a pastor, and we can argue about that later, but hopefully we won't have to. They're basically the same thing in the Bible. Um, and, and so uh, we all like sharing the duty. We all have a different flavor that God's given us as far as how we come to the Word and then how we unpack the Word. And we believe that it benefits you guys as a whole, as a congregation, not to have one guy, but to have multiple guys that God has called um, to uh, unpack his word. So what we're going to try to do uh, in the coming months is you're going to see literally a different pastor every week preaching. Um, and basically we're going to duplicate. So this is a sermon that I did two weeks ago down in Lapine that I'm bringing to you. So don't go on the recordings and cheat. All right, because you'll be able to now. So don't, don't go on to the point. Rich Smith's in trouble because he has to hear him anyway. So I don't know what to do with you, Rich. I'm sorry. You just got to hear everything twice. But the rest of you, just wait. Just wait for your turn. We're all going to come around and get to you. But that's what you're going to get. Me and Pastor Chad are going to embark on Galatians right now. And Brent and Terry are going to continue in Acts. All right. And then we'll see where we go from there. That's what you're going to get from now on. All four of us every single month. All right. I hope that's cool. It sounds neat. Don't know if it's going to work. If it doesn't, we'll adjust it. We'll, we'll figure it out, okay? So Galatians. If you go to 2 Corinthians, hang it right. If you go to Ephesians, hang it left. You're going to find it right there. And we're going to take the first nine verses, which I know is a lot. It says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God the Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. 
Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be accursed. The reason I want to take the, the first nine verses of this today is it answers everything that we want answered when we go into a new book. What we want when we go into a new book is who's writing it, who's he writing to, and why is he writing it. And that's what we get in verses 1 through 9. So where we start, who wrote this book, I'm going to go out on a limb, and I'm going to say that Paul wrote this book. Okay? You guys cool with that? All right. And the reason I ask that is because, like, if you go to, like, commentaries and you start looking at higher criticism, I don't care who they are, there's this thing where they want to question absolutely everything, even things that have been made plain and obvious to us. Now, I'm just not that kind of guy. I'm not smart enough. I don't have the time for it. Frankly, it just frustrates me and annoys me to do. So I've even stopped going to a lot of these places when I go into a book. I'm going to say that Paul. Someone might then say, which Paul? I'm going to go further out on that limb and say the Apostle Paul. Those are the first three words of the book, all right? Paul the Apostle. So we're going to, we're going to go with Paul the Apostle, the Paul that you all know and are thinking of, is the one that, uh, that wrote this. Now, if you notice when we read that, Paul means business here. Like a lot of times in the letters and the epistles that he writes, um, there's a lot of pleasantries that go on. And uh, what Paul's doing here is he's just throwing a fastball over the plate. Like he, he's, he's not messing around in this book. And um, because he's not messing around in this book, it makes good sense that the first thing he wants to establish or start with is his apostolic authority. That he, that he has authority to say the things that he's about to say. Like he wants to make sure that the words that are about to follow have some weight. And part of how he does that is by clarifying how he came to be an apostle. Because the way Paul became an apostle is a bit unique. A little bit different than the other guys, right? How did the rest of the apostles, let's say the original 11, how did they become apostles? Yeah, they were, they were handpicked by Jesus while he walked on earth, while Jesus walked on earth. How was Paul called to be an apostle? He was handpicked by Jesus after Jesus walked off the earth, right? After he uh, ascended. So that's how Paul became an apostle. Eleven were picked during the life of Jesus. One was picked through the revelation of Jesus Christ as one born out of due time. Okay? Which is why Paul says here, he became an apostle not from men, nor through man, but through God, both the Father and the Son. Okay? In other words, Paul has some credibility. right? He's got some gospel cred. He's got apostolic authority. By the way, I cannot say this to you, and Pastor Terry cannot say this to you. And Brent cannot say this to you, and Chad cannot say this to you. If somebody comes to you and says this to you, run. Because they're about to pour you Kool-Aid afterward. <laughs> Serious. How many times have you come across these people that are self-appointed? That, are, that have authority because 
They choose to have authority. I want you to understand that for me personally, I did not vote myself into this gig at all. Right? Like, I literally would not be doing what I do right now if it was not for the godly men around me, pastors over me, elders and leaders that love God and love His Word, seeing that calling on me and then laying hands on me and saying, you need to be doing this. It came through men. Do you know why we do it that way? Do you know why we surround ourselves with godly people every day? Why it's necessary? Because you and I should not trust ourselves with anything. If there's something I can mess up, I promise you I will. That's part of the reason we established a plurality of elders at this church is because this thing would have detonated years ago if it was me doing it. The only reason I am here is because other men, godly men, saw what God was doing and appointed me. People, there are a lot of pastors out there and churches starting and movements starting that are not like that. There are people who are pointing themselves to positions and callings that are not of God. And so just keep that in mind, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But Paul is a little unique this way. He's a little different. Which uh, Paul uh, had an extremely unique story. He had an extremely unique calling, uh, which is an important inclusion for Paul to make here. Um, due to who the Galatians were, which brings us to the second point of business. Paul wrote the letter. He's writing to the Galatians. Okay? It says that there in, uh, at the backside of two, pretty plainly, to the churches of Galatia. And, and so he's writing to the Galatians. Now, I want you to notice that Paul's not just writing to one localized congregation. This is plural. Right? The church was not as fragmented then in the beginning as it is now. Unfortunately, it is the way it is, but at the same time, there's some reasons that we can praise God for for why it's fragmented too. I know that sounds funny, but at the time, they were pretty unified. Um, There's some different thoughts on what part of Galatia, what people in Galatia he's writing to. I really don't think it matters if it's the north, the south, or the whole providence. I, it, it really doesn't change anything, but it's most likely, in my opinion, the southern part of Galatia. Because as you guys have been seeing in your study through the book of Acts, particularly uh, chapters 12, 13, 14, I think 15, we see Paul on his first missionary journey traveling through these, these towns in Galatia. He goes to Lystra. He goes to Iconium. He goes to Derby. And if you pull out a map at that time and you look at uh, the providence of Galatia at that time, all those places are like uh, locked together on the southern end. And so it's more, it's more than likely these are the churches that he went and established in those places um, that he's talking to right now. Okay? We know that he went to those places. We know that he established churches there. And we also know that the Judaizers followed him to each of those places, which are going to become the main villains as we move through this book. They're part of the problem. Okay? And we'll get there. So, what were these Galatian people like? As far as the citizens and what they might have been like, from some of the stuff that I read, 
I think that they were a lot like us as modern-day Americans in a lot of ways. Caesar wrote of them during this time, the infirmity of the Gauls, which is the Galatians, is that they are fickle in their resolves, they are fond of change, and they're not to be trusted. Another historian described the Galatians as frank, impetuous, impressionable, eminently intelligent, fond of show, but extremely inconsistent, the fruit of excessive vanity. Sounds like me. (laughs) Fickle, not very constant, inconsistent. Basically, they were a throwaway society in about every way. They were continually moving on to the next whatever there was to move on to. Right? Much like we do with our trends and our interests and our vehicles and our wardrobes and our presidents. You know what I mean? We're always moving on. One day we vote them into office, the next day we crucify them. That's just how we roll here. Sometimes I look at the approval polls that are taken and I ask myself, who in the world voted these guys in? Because it's not in their favor. Sports teams, we're the same way. If our team's going good, we're fans. Right? If they're not doing so good, we know exactly what needs to happen and who needs to go. That dude needs to be fired. That dude needs to be fired. Right? Armchair general managers. It's what we are. The Galatians were this way. It was a throwaway society, but I think the most telling piece of information about the Galatians is actually found in the book of Acts in chapter 14, where we see Paul and we see Barnabas walk into Lystra. And they do what they always do. They go to the most crowded part of town and they start sharing the gospel. You guys just went through this not too long ago in Acts. Okay? And it says that as they're in the midst of these people, Paul spots this dude off to the side that hasn't been able to walk since birth. He's on the ground. And it says in the text, Paul looked at him intently and saw that this man had faith to be healed. And Paul looks at him and he says, get up and walk. And this dude gets up and walks. And what do the Galatians do in response? They make them gods. They stick them on their shoulders and they champion them around and they have a party and they celebrate and they go into their pagan temples and they bring out sacrifices and they throw them at their feet and sacrifice to them as gods. They call Barnabas Zeus and they call Paul Hermes. Guess what they're doing a couple days later? Dragging them outside the city gates and killing them with rocks because the Judaizers came in. And said, nah, these dudes are frauds. And they're like, okay, you got the next thing, we're good. They're constantly moving on. They're blown about by the wind. They soon changed their mind on Paul, and they're now soon changing their mind on the gospel that Paul brought them. And that gospel which Paul brought them, he reminds them of right off the bat in verses 3 and 4 and 5 in short form. And yet, in full form. Because the gospel is that simple. He starts 
with grace. Let me read it. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. He starts with grace. Do you know what grace is? It is unmerited favor. This matters. Where Paul's going in this letter, this matters that he starts with grace. It is unmerited favor. What is peace? It is restored relationship. It is something reconciled that was once broken. Who brings the grace and the peace according to Paul, according to the gospel? God does. God's bringing it to them, the Galatians, right? It's due to God, not them. Now, how did he reconcile us by his grace? How did God reconcile you and I to himself by grace, by giving himself for our sins? This is the gospel. This is why people need to come to Jesus. It's because they are sinners and hell is real. And if they don't receive what God has given them and done for them, they will end up there. This is the gospel. That God died for our sins. And this matters too, because of where Paul's going to go. He delivered us from this present evil age according to His will. What Christ did in dying on the cross for our sins by His grace has delivered us, guys, from everything that we desperately need to be delivered from so that we may be right with God. That's why the gospel exists. That's why Jesus went to the cross so that you and I may be right with God. Because we weren't. This also tells us that there's no more delivering to do. Christ's work is sufficient. No more delivery needed to be accomplished. It is done, or as Jesus said on the cross, it is finished paid in full. And it is by faith in this gospel that all the glory belongs to God because He's the one who did it. God is the hero of the gospel. This ain't a 50-50 deal. This ain't an 80-20 deal. This ain't a 99-1 deal. This is a 110% God deal. Someone might say, now we both play a part, like God had to do his part, but now I've got to do my part to make salvation real. No. Look, we, here's our part. We're the, we, we sinned. He, we did the sinning. He does the saving. Okay? If, if, if you want some synergism, there it is. <laughs> we, we broke everything. He fixed it. And now he's invited us freely into it. There's nothing else to be done. Which brings us to why this book is written. This is where it's going to get a little heavy. I hope you guys understand that when we shoot straight from the pulpit, it's not, it's because we love you and we love the Word of God. It's, we're, we're never, we never ever get up here and set out to offend someone or make somebody mad. You guys understand? Like Paul can look like a jerk right here in this, in this letter, but he's not being a jerk. 
It's being a shepherd. And we are imperfect people. But we say some of the things that we pray over all week as we look at these texts. Because we want to shepherd you well too. I have to answer to my dad when I get home. And he loves you more than I do. And sometimes we just need to hear stuff we don't want to hear. We don't think we're better than anybody else in this church. We don't think our church is better than any other church that holds the gospel. And so I don't want it to come off that way. We're, we see how this, why this book was written in verses 6 and 7, where he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some that trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. What is the first thing that we see here? There is only one gospel, but there are many perversions of it. There is one gospel, but many distortions of it. There is one gospel, but a ton of imposters. This is why we must not just own 50 Bibles like we do. They're all over our house. They're all over our cars. They're in our pockets, on our phones. They're in our bathrooms. Like we, we need to not just own 50 Bibles. We need to know what our Bibles say. If we do not know what our Bibles say, we will believe anything. They are the roadmap. They are the unfailing GPS. That's why we go through the Bible when we gather. You know what I mean? I like to think that i got a lot of neat things to say to you and I'm entertaining, but I hope none of you are coming to hear what I have to say or what I think. That's the most dangerous Bible study or church there is where we all sit around and pull out a verse and say, what do you think about this? What does this say to you? We're not here. We're not here to scrutinize the Word of God. The Word of God scrutinizes us, right? And so this is why we come and we camp. We pull up chairs around this centerpiece because God has spoken. You guys should not be here to hear what I have to say. We want to hear what God has to say. This is why we're going through books here. Our Bibles are one of the greatest benefits that you and I have, but not if we don't use them. And the evangelical landscape in America today would indicate that we're not using them well. Because modern day America doesn't look much different than first century Galatia. We have multiple movements spreading across the land like cancer, masquerading as Christianity, masquerading as the gospel. And they're not. And I think that every one of us in here even have some of it that's crossed streams and crept into our gospel without even knowing it. And we need to check ourselves every once in a while to make sure we're believing the once-for-all gospel that's been handed down by Christ and preserved all the way to us. I'm going to give you the three most popular that are going on. Because I, I want when you see them, that you see a red flag and not a green pasture. You know what I'm saying? Guess what the first one is? You guys already know. Because we talk about it all the time. Because we hate it that much. Which one is it? Prosperity, Prosperity gospel. 
I've got to spend a lot of time on these, but I just <laughs> want to put them in your rearview mirror again. Prosperity gospel. This false gospel teaches that if you come to Jesus, he will make this life now better. Question. Does Jesus and knowing Jesus make this life better now? Yeah. But it's not because he changes what's being done to me. It's because he's changed what's in me. All the circumstances that happen to the world, everything that man is in arm's reach of getting nailed with, I can get nailed with too as a Christian, as a child of God. The difference is how I receive that and respond to that because of who lives in me. He changes us. He doesn't change all of this so that we can be happy. He changes this so that we can be happy no matter what this looks like. With prosperity gospel, the primary reason to come to the primary reason to come to Jesus is so that your life now is good, better, blessed in a health and wealth sense. No struggle, no strife, no poverty, no pain, no bad things. I don't even know where to begin with the amount of scriptures against this idea. I don't, I don't even know where to start. Like Jesus made some promises. One of them is that in this world you will have tribulation. Like he's telling his his main boys this. Like the big ones. Like you can expect this. In fact, you can take it to the bank. Do you guys know how they died? I mean, come on, guys. If you just look at the history of, of Christianity, there is a red blood river that flows all the way through it. Those are God's people. And the world looks at that and goes, why in the heck would I sign up for that? He promises that in this world we will have tribulation. He does not say what that tribulation will look like, but we all know what it feels like. And then the back half of that verse he says, but take heart, because I have overcome the world. Because of the back part of that verse, you and I can all endure the front part of that verse. He says, even though you trust me, you will be susceptible to every form of tragedy and pain that this world has to offer, but it's worth it on the backside. In other words, check this out. Think about it this way. If you are born again, if you have the Spirit of God living in you and the seal of God on you as a child of God, what you are going through, the worst things you go through in this life right now, is the only hell you will ever know. You can do it now, can't you? When you lose your job, when you lose your child, when you get diagnosed with cancer, take heart because what's coming is far going to outweigh it. Jesus is saying, I got you. You'll feel and experience it now, but soon no more. Jesus did not come to make this life better. He came to make eternity unimaginably worth everything that we experience in this life now.
if you measure God's goodness and God's acceptance and his approval towards you according to how well your life is going, you have believed a false gospel. And we all do this sometimes, don't we? It's false. And it's the prosperity gospel. Number two, this one's going to sound a little bit different. This one's growing like wildfire. This one makes me almost as mad as the prosperity gospel. And this is where I might upset a few people. And I don't, I'm not, that's not my intention. I just want your eyes to be open. It's the signs and wonders gospel, otherwise known as word faith. Some of you would say this is more of a movement. It's more of a way of doing Christianity. But the truth is, the way it is now, in many respects, it's the reason why people are coming to Jesus. So I call it a gospel. False one. This false gospel teaches that Christianity is all about having a God experience. I've had a lot of God experiences, guys. I'm going on almost 30 years of being a Christian, but most of those have been in the woodshed, not at the top of Mount Sinai. And it doesn't mean that I haven't seen God do miraculous things in my life because I I have. But he is not a genie in a lamp that I walk around and rub and say, do a trick, do a trick, do a trick. But one of the biggest false gospels out there, that's exactly what they teach. It's with this gospel, false gospel, it's not so much about what you believe to be true, but about what you see and what you feel. It is based primarily on and around emotions and the miraculous. Once again, I don't know where to start with what's wrong with this. Okay, And let me also say this because I know I'm going to get some emails. God is bigger than everything that exists because He made it. It all bends to His rules. It can only do what He wants it to. He is not subject to what's created and the natural order of things. It's subject to Him. But one of the things that God has done is He has created laws with the natural order. That's from God. When we die, sin brought that into the world, but God created and upholds that law. I get sick. The sun rises on me and sets on me just like it does any other person. The rain falls on me just like it does any other person. Like There are things that God has put in place, and that's Him. That's just as much Him as if He comes in and decides to violate those laws because they're His to violate. Okay, I believe that God can do absolutely anything He wants to at any time. We good? All right. One of the fastest growing evangelical movements of our day is the one of signs and wonders. This is also known as the NAR. This is not to be mixed up with the NRA. They're both powerful, but uh, the NAR is different. It means New Apostolic Reformation. The Petri dish, the epicenter of this false gospel, is found in Redding, California, at a place called Bethel. Told you it was going to hurt some of you. Some of you are all up in Bethel. It is dangerous. The movement is dangerous. They are not preaching a sound Jesus or a sound gospel. Let me give you an example of one of the dangers. On December 13th, last month, there was a young couple that goes to Bethel. 
This is, again, this is the end. Like, this is just the most recent example, guys. You can go back and see all kinds of this madness. A young couple, man and wife, with a two-year-old daughter named Olive. They had to experience something that no parent ever wants to experience when they walked in and found their daughter not breathing. They did the right thing. They called 911. They got her into an ambulance. They got her to the hospital. They did everything they could. They could not resuscitate her. She was gone. Unimaginable. Ever since that day, these parents and those pastors of Bethel Church and the congregation have been holding worship sessions. Do you know why? So that God will raise a little olive now. Question. When he doesn't, when little olive doesn't come back, what does that mean? What does that say about the God that they worship? What does that say about their Christianity and the gospel that they've bought into? What does that do to the faith of those parents? The whole church is involved in this. It's a huge thing. There's young families going. There's there's young kids, teenagers. What does it do to their faith? Is God incapable? Could he not do it? It's dangerous. Gospel is not found in God putting on a show or giving us a nice, happy, exciting feeling when we want it or when we need it. You know what? God put on a show 2,000 years ago on a hill called Calvary. Do you know that? I don't need to see nothing else. It's the greatest show that this world has ever seen. And it was at the expense of his son. That is the God experience. That is the gospel. That if God never does another thing again, he's already done it all for you and me. That's what the gospel, that's what the real gospel tells us. It says, look there. Look at that trick that God performed. That's where it's at. Finally, we have the third and most popular false gospel, which has always been the most popular gospel, false gospel, and always will be. And that's the works righteousness gospel. And this is the oldest form. And it happens to be the one that Paul is writing the Galatians about here. This gospel says that you were saved by Jesus plus something else. You fill in the blank. Jesus plus. Could you pull that closed real quick, bro? Oh, perfect. Thank you so much. I'm like seeing black dots all over my notes. This one says, yeah, Jesus died for us, but we have to go to church. Or we have to give 10%. Or we have to be more good than bad. Or we have to vote Republican. Or we have to pray every night before we go to bed. Or we have to be circumcised. We'll get into that one as we get through this book. Whatever. Fill in the blank. It doesn't matter. This is the one that you and I are programmed to. Every day when we get out of bed, no one has to teach us a works righteousness philosophy. This is the one we gravitate toward all the time. 
It's just so natural to us to earn, to merit, to work or perform, to get, and it's false. This is known as salvific synergism. I know that's a funky word. Salvific sounds like what? Salvation, right? Synergism, you guys know what that is? It's two, two parties working together to accomplish something, right? And it's not true. It's garbage, and it's extremely dangerous. And we see it in Paul's response to these people right here at the beginning of this letter. It's a bad deal. Works righteousness is not something that is no big deal or mostly harmless for someone to believe and practice. It is contra-gospel. It is against the gospel. Please listen. Any attempt to add to the gospel by human effort becomes a denial of grace. That's heavy to think about, so I'm going to say it again. Any attempt to add to the gospel by human effort becomes a denial of grace. And brothers and sisters, if we don't have the grace of God, we have nothing. It actually kills the gospel of Christ. It undoes its power. And it robs God of his glory. What's going on here in Galatia, as we're going to see as we move further into this letter, is that an outside party, the Judaizers, are placing works as a requirement for salvation upon these converts. And unfortunately, they're buying it. And there's no salvation in it. None. That's why Paul is, quote-unquote, astonished. This is why Paul is not playing around. Look at 8 and 9. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be accursed. Here's what that means. It does not matter who the the messenger is if the message is wrong. It doesn't matter who the messenger is if the message is wrong. It doesn't matter how popular they are. It doesn't matter how likable they are. It doesn't matter how smart they are, how good of a communicator they are, even how loving they appear to be. It doesn't matter if it's your best friend bringing you the gospel or Kanye West. If it's not the gospel that Jesus brought and taught, let it rot. See what I did there? It's bad. It's dangerous. It is death-bringing, not life-giving. Even if it's an angel. Now, now this one's weird, guys, because angels are rad. Like, this is an angelic being. You're thinking if an angel comes to you and talks to you, that's fair game. Like, that's pretty incredible. This is a little bit prophetic almost of Paul, huh? There's a dude a couple hundred years ago that had a private briefing with an angel and got additional revelation. He got a new gospel. And that false gospel is spread across this world now, too. came from an angel. Crazy stuff. Paul doesn't care who it is that's bringing you the false message, because no matter who it is, this is how apostasy happens. This is how cults start. This is how Satan empties the church. By a little bit of leaven, spitting a little bit of truth, mixed with a whole lot of lie, and boom, the bomb goes off, 
and the sheep fall off the cliff. Paul says here, don't take this lightly. Take this seriously. If somebody's preaching a false gospel among you, show them the door. No pun intended. Show them the door. You know what I mean? Do not use pleasantries. Do not pack them a sandwich or a blanket or a blessing to go along with that. Right? Do not pass go like this person needs to leave. They are anathema. That's strong. Those are fighting words. They are a curse. They're not just neutral. They're against. Like they're working for the other team. This sounds harsh, but Paul, again, is not being a jerk. He's being a shepherd. He's saying, feed the sheep, shoot the wolves. The door has been here for eight and a half years. We've had to do this twice, and some of you remember it. They happen pretty early on. Because the church, you know, is like a bug lamp. You know? (laughs) The, the, actually, that's the good news and the bad news, the, the, is, is that the church is a bug lamp. They will come. When we started, they came. And both times, they were the most likable, magnetic, I don't know. They were just people you wanted to be around. They spoke well. They were smart. They knew their Bible in dangerous amounts. They were great until we started seeing some of our new believers come back with some ideas and table conversations they'd been having. And we started going like, can you say that again? And there were people that were bringing false gospels in. And so we, with love and tears, pleaded with these people, with the Bible, not with our own arguments to come back to a real, pure, true gospel. And they did not. And when they did not, they had to leave. Because that's what a shepherd does. Is he keeps the sheep safe. Keeps the wolves out of the pen. And it never looks good. And there are people that loved those couples, both of them, that were in this church that I think hated us for what we did afterward, that did not understand it. It looked wrong. But I want you to know, as I stand here today, it was right for your sake. It was right. And they won't be the last ones. And this is Paul's heart here. Did you see it? You and I are here to protect the life-giving words of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. Who cares about the worship? Who cares about the paint color on the walls? Who cares about all the things that churches seem to care so much about? We are here to protect the gospel of Jesus and dispense that and proclaim that. That's it. And that's what Paul was all about too. We are an imperfect church. We have a lot of error. We have a lot of problems. But I hope that you guys see that we care about protecting the gospel. We may not have a lot else, but we do care about that. And by the grace of God, we will continue to do a good job with that. Love you guys. It's good to be back in Three Rivers.
Thank you, God, for being a really, really good shepherd to us sheep. To your glory. Amen.